The duties of charities to safeguard adults. Where are we now? You're listening to the Public Law Podcast, brought to you by the members of 39 Essex Chambers. Hello and welcome back to Everyone's Business, a safeguarding podcast. I'm Ian Brownhill, barrister at 39 Essex Chambers and sometime host of this podcast series. For those of you who don't know us, Everyone's Business is a series of safeguarding podcasts that we started in summer 2022. We released 10 episodes last year and now in 2023, we're back for Safeguarding Adults Week. And today I'm joined by one of my colleagues in Chambers, Francesca Gardner. Hi, Francesca. Thank you for having me. Uh, Lots of you will know Francesca already. She's an expert in court of protection work, both health and welfare and property affairs. She also does mental health and associated public law work with some family law cases with a safeguarding theme as well. She's a deputy district judge and today she's joining me to discuss safeguarding adults in charities. Now, In respect of safeguarding adults and charities, there's actually been lots of focus on the way in which charities' safeguarding duties resound for children and young people. And that traditionally has tended to be what the press and what lawyers focus on and discuss. But in lots of the cases which Francesca and I deal with, charities have much more significant roles when it comes to safeguarding adults. Quite often, the third sector and charities will be commissioned to work directly with adults providing them care and support, and perhaps. Or as well as having contact with them in a sort of less direct way or a less frequent way, perhaps through food banks or in debt advice services. And something we do know has been in the spotlight in respect of safeguarding adults has been the way in which things have gone wrong overseas, especially in the aid sector. And since early 2018, the Foreign Commonwealth and Development Office have been focused on safeguarding against sexual exploitation and abuse and sexual harassment in the international aid sector. It's a real focus for them. It's something that they talk about publicly. It's been talked about in Parliament. And it's something which has increasingly been talked about in the press. And not unexpectedly, the FCDO has said that when people are involved in trying to reduce poverty overseas that the only focus isn't just on the reduction of poverty and ameliorating the problems associated with it, but also making sure that the actual delivery of aid itself doesn't actually become something harmful to the people who ought to be being helped. And that's particularly in respect of sexual harm and sexual harassment. Because what the FCDO wants to happen is that they will listen to people abroad who are receiving aid and receiving support They'll respond to them. And and when things go wrong, that there's an expectation that NGOs and charities will learn from them. So the FCDO has made perfectly clear for those charities working overseas that the expectation is that if you're developing and delivering aid and humanitarian programs across the world, that you'll be held to high standards when it comes to safeguarding And that includes safeguarding adults. So some of you will remember that in September 2020, the FCDO launched their own strategy on safeguarding against sexual exploitation and abuse and sexual harassment in the AIDS sector. And basically what the strategy says is that all of the UK's government departments that engage with overseas development and aid will expect there to be safeguarding standards internal within the organisations themselves, but also in terms of the whole international aid sector. So anybody that the UK government partners with now in respect of overseas aid, 
there's an expectation that they will meet a standard when it comes to safeguarding. But it's not just in the international development field where this has come up. Certainly in my work, the faith organisations working overseas who I work with, especially those doing missionary work, there's been an increased focus on making sure that systems are more robust in respect of sexual exploitation. But that's really just a snapshot of where we've got up to as a result of some of those high-profile cases when it comes to what's going on for charities and NGOs overseas. In the meantime, the Charity Commission has been developing the expectations here at home. What do we expect from a charity working in the UK? And Francesca, I know that's something you're familiar with and you've been looking at. So in terms of the actual expectations, what are the expectations from the Charity Commission when it comes to safeguarding adults? The starting point is that the expectations are extremely detailed and broad. Just for context, in terms of what the Commission is, the Charity Commission is the body responsible for registering and regulating charities in England and Wales to ensure that the public can support charities with confidence And the purpose of the Commission can be distilled to five main areas. So the first is holding charities to account. The second, to deal with wrongdoing and harm. The third is to inform public choice. Fourth, to give charities the understanding and tools they need to succeed. And the fifth is to keep charities relevant for today's world. Now, the obvious starting point in terms of the Commission's expectations, is that all charities have a responsibility to ensure that they don't cause harm to anyone who comes into contact with them. Charities working with adults at risk, which is the context in which we talk about safeguarding in this podcast, have extra responsibilities when it comes to safeguarding. And if you look at the Commission purpose statement, It sets out that harm and abuse have a devastating impact and a strong safeguarding culture means you protect people, you minimise the risks of harm or abuse, everyone has confidence, you have to make sure everyone has confidence that their concerns will be dealt with appropriately and that everyone at the charity understands their role. Now, that might all seem very obvious, but they are absolutely the key themes of decision-making and in large part, They formulate the route to having an effective and comprehensive safeguarding policy. I'm going to come to that in due course about how to develop these policies and how to make sure that they are kept up to date. But the starting point in terms of the expectations, any charity must be aware in detail of the expectations. But to summarise them, there are five. So you start with identifying and managing risks. Second, you have suitable policies and practices in place. Third, you carry out the necessary checks. Fourth, you protect the volunteers and staff within the organisation. And fifth, you handle and report incidents appropriately. Now, each of the five expectations could cover a podcast in and of themselves. But to just summarise the key points in relation to the expectations. In terms of identifying and managing risk, a charity must identify any safeguarding risks that it needs to manage. This will obviously depend on a number of factors. Again, they seem obvious, but they're extremely important. So who does the charity work with? Where does it operate? And what does it do? And a good example of this are the cases that Ian referred to, where you have foreign aid being provided to people who are undoubtedly vulnerable and at risk of exploitation. So you consider the context in which the charity is being provided, who it's working with, where it operates, and then you consider and anticipate 
And I emphasise anticipate because this is how you create effective policy. You anticipate what risk there may be of abuse and you then safeguard around it. So you may have a safeguarding policy, for example, that sets out what the charity may do in the event of a safeguarding concern being raised. But that doesn't quite go far enough because you've got to identify what the sort of risks are and what you would then do in those certain scenarios. And what that means is, if you have a risk that materialises, rather than there being a period of time of thinking, right, what needs to be done about it, you'll have a clear policy and procedure in place. So the anticipation of the risk is extremely important and will vary, of course, from charity to charity. The second expectation is having suitable policies in place. I'm going to come to that in more detail shortly. Third, to carry out necessary checks. It goes without saying that a charity's workforce and volunteers must be properly scrutinised. There needs to be the relevant DPS checks, full and thorough references. But over and above that, that needs to be reviewed regularly. A charity needs to know exactly who's working for it, who is volunteering, and whether or not they are appropriate and safe in the context of the work that's being done. Fourth area is to protect volunteers and staff. This needs to be protection from bullying and whistleblowing. And such a huge part of drafting policies in relation to safeguarding for charities is to ensure there are clear procedures in place to protect whistleblowers. Again, going back to the references that Ian made in relation to the provision of international aid, where you have and we do have a real body now of studies and investigations that were carried out around that time. The figures and the data in relation to what actually happened to the whistleblowers at the time or the extent to which people felt that they could raise the alarm is really concerning. So there has to be procedures in place to protect not only those making a complaint, but those raising a concern as well. So they know exactly where to go to, but they then need to know that once they've raised that concern their interests will be protected. I don't know if you wanted to come in on this, Ian. I think, did you have something you wanted to add about protection of whistleblowers? Well, I think it's such a good point that you're making. So in virtually every single case where I've been involved with a charity that's had a safeguarding issue, in fact, I'm going to be bold, I'm going to say it here and now, I would say 100% of those cases had whistleblowing issues in them. And one of the interesting things I find, perhaps from a sort of law and safeguarding geekery point of view, is that sometimes the whistleblowing policy doesn't actually marry up with the policy in respect of safeguarding. And sometimes they get conflated. And I think that being clear what the role of the two policies are is incredibly important. I absolutely agree. And I think when you look at the particular examples, and certainly the cases we're involved in, such an important step in the process is the protection of the whistleblowers, because that often acts as a deterrent to raising the alarm. And it absolutely falls under the umbrella of safeguarding those within the organisation. That's an incredibly important expectation. The fifth and final is to handle and report incidents appropriately. Again, it seems obvious, but absolutely essential. So charities must always follow policies and procedure when handling incidents. They must record incidents in a secure and responsible manner. Now, in relation to this, there is some really helpful guidance on the Commission website, but some of the key points goes to acting promptly 
so many issues and cases that I'm involved in, Ian, I don't know if you share this experience, is that a complaint is made or a concern is raised and then there's this period of time where consideration is given as to what happens then rather than promptly starting the investigation. Once that's part of your policy and procedure, it's easier to follow. You promptly investigate by taking steps X, Y and Z as opposed to thinking, right, we've had this complaint, what now? I don't know if you have that shared experience, Ian, but delay has been a huge issue in my cases. Delay really is a problem just from the perspective that quite often what happens is an issue arises, it's identified, and then there's this awful period of time when people are trying to desperately work out who is the person who's responsible for dealing with it and looking at it. And for those of you listening who are working in the third sector, Francesca and I are not being unrealistic. We know that not every charity, not every NGO has a safeguarding manager or a safeguarding team. We know that some of you will have trustees do it. We know that some of you will have people within HR do it, if you're lucky enough to have a HR department. But but just identifying who that person is, who doesn't necessarily have to be an expert in safeguarding, but who has to have sufficient grounding so that they can know where to go to seek help is really important this is maybe a slightly odd aside, but some particular charities, when it comes to their insurance policies, will actually require that their insurer is told very rapidly if a safeguarding issue is raised. And again, that is one of the things which regularly doesn't happen. There are some charities who actually have had the ability to bring in people from the outside, safeguarding consultants or lawyers, because their insurer has taken the view that it's safer to pay for that person to be brought into the charity to assist rather than letting the charity just go ahead and dealing with it themselves. So that sort of urgent identification as to who is going to deal with the issue, what help they're going to need, ought to always be one of the policies. I absolutely agree. Just picking up on the insurer point, again, there's some helpful guidance on the involvement of the insurers, the importance of getting insurance, and then the point at which they're notified. There's some helpful guidance on the website. But I think just before we move on from this delay point, I think where there is uncertainty about who is responsible for conducting the investigation, who they are to then contact, what help they're going to get and what steps they're then going to take, not only does that cause delay, but it opens up this window of opportunity. And I use the word opportunity carefully because it opens up this window of time where a charity and this again is not criticism, then considers about the ramifications on the charity of that concern being raised and of that investigation. And again, when we look back to the very serious misconduct cases with the international aid crisis, you know, so much of the criticism was because the focus had been on what are the implications for the charity. And again, this all comes back to, well, what does the safeguarding policy say? Because if it's focused on promptly investigating, knowing who's going to start that process, knowing who they need to contact and what support they get, it really reduces the opportunity for there to be that period of considering, if I can put it as bluntly as this, the wrong factors and opening the charity up for criticism. So I think I can't emphasise enough that the importance of it being clear exactly what happens at the point that a concern is raised. And I think that just building on that ever so slightly, I think Francesca's completely right there. But I think there's another point to this, which seems to come up in the charitable sector quite often, which is that if you don't have a clear policy and procedure when the safeguarding concern lands, 
then you get effectively this sort of creep position where you get loads and loads and loads of different people involved in the charity, loads of them with different agendas and experiences. And you also then get what can only be described, I think in the legal term for it, is people being nobbled. I can't think of a sort of way of describing it better than people getting nobbled because what happens is you get people from all over the charity being involved and they kind of go, oh, so-and-so wouldn't do that. They're a good person. Or, or oh, oh, no, we don't have that problem here. That's not our interest. That's not what happens in our charity. And you get all of these factors coming in. I remember doing something with one particular charity where we had this sort of creep where lots and lots of different people got involved. And then someone said, have we spoken to the donor relation team about this? Well, sorry, what's the donor relation team got to do with a safeguarding (laughs) concern? Nothing. But for me, looking through the email exchanges as the concern came in, what should have happened is it should have been a really demarked process. Safeguarding concern should have gone to X person, should then have decided what actions needed to be taken. And, you know, if necessary, that involves bringing people in from the outside. And so when charities have a safeguarding issue... It's a slightly unusual one for charities compared to the statutory sector, sport, or a sort of commercial organisation. Because what will happen in a charity is it's not necessarily the local authority who will come knocking on the charity's door. It isn't necessarily the police either. It is sometimes the charity commission themselves. So sometimes safeguarding concerns are referred directly to the charity commission, which is a slightly unusual feature. Or alternatively... It can actually be other statutory services. So not necessarily the local authority, but perhaps someone in health will raise a concern or someone in a different service, perhaps, for example, housing will raise a concern. And so the charity then has to have some sort of process in identifying not only who's going to deal with it internally at the charity, but who do we need to tell? So is it a notifiable incident to the charity commission? Is it something we need to raise with the local authority? Is it something we need to raise with our insurer. And then you have to have someone who is able to triangulate all of that at the charity level itself. And the other point of learning for charities, which again, is difficult if it's a small charity. And I fully appreciate that the vast majority of charities in the UK are actually small charities. And that comes to sort of low level concerns. So what charities have got good at is doing vetting. So they understand now that they have to get DBSs for certain activities and so on and so forth. They're also good at doing sort of big headline, if there is a safeguarding concern, it's something major, they're now much better at alerting the local authority or sometimes alerting the police as to its existence. What there's a problem with though, is sort of low level information. So low level concerns and some perpetrators of abuse moving around different charities in a local area, or even just within a sector within England and Wales. They just go from place to place. And one of the interesting things about that, and again, perhaps something we could do an entire episode on in 2024, is the profile of people who are involved in romance fraud. So one of the really interesting things about romance fraud is that the perpetrators of romance fraud will tend to pick on people who are vulnerable. And where do you find sometimes people who are vulnerable, who are adults and have access to their own money, but in charitable settings? So romance fraud quite often can start at a charity event, you know, meeting people who are vulnerable. You go, you find your victim, people go, oh, that's strange. Where's that relationship come from? That person then disappears, goes to a different town, does it again and keeps going and so forth. So 
it's really interesting in respect of that particular pinch point. How do you deal with those levels of concern? So firstly, as a charity, do you have a system to deal with low levels of concern? Secondly, how do you share information with partners and other charities in that area? And when it comes to the data protection stuff, that is a headache, isn't it, Francesca? It's always anything information sharing in respect of safeguarding always makes people's brains hurt a little bit. It does. But just picking up on two points there, I think that it really reiterates one of the key expectations, which is you've got to continuously check who is working for your charity, both in terms of on your employed workforce and your volunteers, not routine DBS checks. They need to be really thorough references. So like you say, when you have these people that move from charity to charity, a charity ought to know that. You know, if they've only been at the previous charity for a year or two, what about the one before that? And what about the one before that? It's absolutely essential that there are these checks done. But then the other aspect is about online safety. And I think this is a real challenge for charities. I mean, it's a challenge for public bodies and it's a challenge for society. But in relation to charities, a lot of the ways now that charities can fundraise and you know have a, a presence generally is to have an online presence and online activity. And that undoubtedly then has to be part of, if not its very own, safeguarding policy. And as we all know, certainly working in safeguarding fields generally, I mean, safeguarding stems across both of our practices in such a broad way, but predators use the internet. And the internet is absolutely where you can identify the vulnerable. So where you have a charity that is online, the commission is really clear about how you need to make sure that you've got everything in place to make sure that that is as safe as it can possibly be. And I think, as we all know, one of the inherent challenges with the internet is that you cannot make it safe. But you absolutely, as a charity, need to do all that you can. I think there are three key points to that. If you have an online presence, you need to think about content. So does the charity have adequate control over its website and social media accounts? Who within the charity can post information? Is all of the content suitable for the charity? You know, who's overseeing it? Look at what the content is. And then there needs to be really careful consideration of who manages that, who can post, for example, who could send a tweet on a Monday morning that might not be picked up by somebody else. You, know, you need to have really clear systems in place to know who can do that. The second is contact. So how do people talk to each other when they use your online services and how do you keep users safe? You know, is there a chat function? Is there a way that you can speak to who you might think is either a support worker or a volunteer through the website? You know, that really is a risky area in terms of who is acting for the charity, what access do they have? And then that comes to the third point, which is conduct. You know, how do you monitor it? How do you monitor what somebody is saying on behalf of the charity? Are they private messaging somebody as a charity worker through the charity's Instagram, Twitter, or whatever account? So it's really, really difficult to manage, but it absolutely has to be confronted and addressed in the safeguarding policy, if not its own safeguarding policy. So just to move on in terms of a safeguarding policy, it's impossible to set out in this podcast exactly what's required in a safeguarding policy. But the starting point is going to be the Commission's website. It's extremely helpful. It's got links to useful guides and it sets out what's required, but then also how to get it. But what I'd like to do is just set out what I hope are four sort of top tips when developing and drafting policy in the safeguarding context. So the first is consideration of what we've referred to but not talked about 
directly, which is the survivor-centred approach, which was developed mainly after the international aid incidents, where you have an approach to safeguarding, and particularly in the context of sexual harm and sexual harassment, that is survivor and victim focused. Now, that isn't easy for charities, because what it means in practical terms is that you enable safe reporting, you listen to the survivor, you listen to those making an allegation if they are an alleged victim, you provide them with support, and you hold perpetrators to account. Now, those perpetrators may be within the charity. And a lot of the studies about this approach highlight what is undoubtedly a potential conflict because you have an approach that is to protect survivors and victims potentially at the risk of not protecting the interests of the charity because the focus will always be on investigating the harm and holding the perpetrators to account. Now, it's not an impossible conflict to manage, but it's one that needs to be confronted within the policy. How does the policy ensure that, for example, somebody that is the subject of an allegation who works within the charity is given a fair hearing, there is a full and fair investigation, whilst the focus is mainly on the allegation and investigating that harm? Because what was quite clear, and there was a theme throughout the investigations after the international aid issues, was that the focus had been on protecting the charities. And this is what we talked about earlier in the podcast, where you have that period of delay between the alert being raised and then there being a body of professionals saying, well, what do we do about this? What's the implications? What about if our funding is pulled? What will this do to our reputation? And the focus has to shift. And the way that it can shift is where you have that very clear procedure in place, like we talked about earlier, This is who will be told. This is who they need to contact. This is the investigation process. And this is what happens if it needs to be an external investigation. So my first top tip is just that making the focus about the alleged victim or the survivor. The second is absolute clarity. This sounds like a really obvious point, but in my experience, and we touched on it earlier, safeguarding policies invariably do not make clear who whistleblowers go to, how they will be protected, who victims go to, where allegations are supposed to be directed at, and then what happens with that allegation and what happens to protect either the person making the allegation, the complainant, or the person that the allegation has been made about. It just needs to be absolutely clear. Names of people. This is the name of the person you contact if you're not comfortable going to that person. And this is what will happen with your information. And this is who we will tell or we will ensure that we have your consent before we do X, Y and Z. It just needs to be absolutely clear so that the person that's going to either raise the alarm or make the allegation has some confidence. The third is about online presence, which I've already talked about, so I won't go over again, but can't emphasize enough the importance of ensuring that any safeguarding policy extends to any online presence that the charity might have. And then the final top tip, again, seems obvious, but cannot be forgotten, review your policies. The commission expects every policy to be reviewed at least annually or after every serious incident, but constantly review it. Things are changing all the time. Risk factors change. Certainly online risks change. There need to be clear processes for review and different people ought to review them to give different insights and input. And I think now it's over to Ian to wrap up this particular podcast that I hope has been helpful. 
thanks very much, Francesco, and thanks for all that incredible insight into how this needs to work on a policy and practical level. And from both Francesca and I and all of the team, we appreciate that this is not something which is straightforward. We appreciate it's something which is sensitive. And we're really grateful for everybody logging on today and listening to what the situation ought to be in respect of safeguarding adults in a charitable setting. So thanks again for joining us. You can follow Francesca on Twitter at Gardner underscore FP. You can follow me at Council Tweets and you can find out more information about our work at 39 Essex at 39 Essex Chambers. And you can, in fact, follow this podcast, see what we might have coming up in 2024 at Safe underscore Cast. Thanks for listening. Find our other podcasts and resources over at 39essex.com. Thank you.